Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, human beings, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. It's fascinating to me that the aha moment where we realize that our purpose is meant to be can come in so many different shapes and forms. Today, I'm joined by Amy Peterson. Amy is CEO and co-founder of Rebel Nell, a Detroit-based jewelry company focused on providing employment, equitable opportunity, and wraparound support for women with barriers to employment. Out of law school, Amy worked for the Detroit Tigers for 11 years and was looking to become the first female general manager in MLB history when she was inspired to take action by women staying at a local homeless shelter. Her story is beyond inspiring and is helping to make a difference in the lives of countless women by creating art out of things like graffiti, old sports stadiums, and more. Amy, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thank you so much for having me, Erin. I didn't screw up that introduction, did I? You were perfect. Thank you. I will take that. And I might have to repeat that over and over and over again on days that I feel like I'm <laughs> very imperfect, which is almost every day. So I don't know where to begin because there's so many different kind of aspects to this. Let's just start with your love for baseball. And if I am correct in stating this, you're general counsel or assistant general counsel for the Detroit Tigers. So you went to law school, you have a love for baseball. And you wanted to be a GM of a major league baseball team. That is all accurate. That is how the journey really started. Honestly, it started when I was about 14. I really started young. I have a very deep love of the game that I shared with my dad and my grandpa. And we have a very small, like single A baseball team where I grew up. They used to be the Jameson Expos and they were the Jammers. Now they're the Tarp Skunks. The Tarp Skunks? Yes, the Tarp Skunks. (laughs) Okay. And that's where I started. I would watch the games and I learned how to score the games really early on where most of the kids were running around the stadium. I just enjoyed learning the art of baseball. I have a buddy, still one of my best friends in the world. His name is Harold Friedman. We've known each other since we're two. And I, I don't know if I blame him or I appreciate him for making me a Mets fan. So I'm a, I'm a lifelong Mets fan, which is, by the way, not easy for anybody who follows baseball. We came closer this year, but of course, in typical Mets fashion, we blew it. But he taught me how to do the scoring. And the other trick he taught me was we would go to games live and we would actually bring these little transistor radios with us and listen to the game on the radio while we're sitting in the stadium because the folks who were able to call the games on the radio were so skilled at it, right? And people really underappreciate that skill. That's old school, and I love it. I have such a, a soft spot for Mets fans. My dad was a Mets fan. I grew up a Pirates fan, so I think the forever underdogs, is there's something to be said for it. So 11 years in the MLB is no joke. I'm not going to say it's dog years. I'm sure you had incredible years. I've got friends who are still working in various aspects, whether directly for baseball teams on the stat side, management, some folks in media as well. It can be a tough environment. Before we get into Rebel Now, and I think this is kind of an interesting segue potentially, what is it that you think you learned throughout that experience and working at MLB for 11 years and as an attorney that helped you form and create Rebel Nell and really run it and to lead it? There's got to be some connective tissue there, even if it's not explicit. I'm sure there's some implicit connective tissue. In so many ways, baseball, especially even like starting in the minors and experiencing 
the small baseball side of things. Like you really get a full perspective of every facet of the business. And that I even carried with me when I went to work for the Tigers because I started as an intern, but I would work in every department. I wanted to learn more. I wanted, I felt like if I was ever going to lead the team or be a jam, I wanted to have a well-rounded brain of how it functions. I'm fascinated with how, you know, at the end of the day, baseball is just a business and the business is baseball and they still have to, you know, be customer facing and, and sell a product. So to see it full circle was, was really helpful to understand And one of the biggest things is I oversaw a lot of the sponsorship contracts. I oversaw the trademark protection. I did some arbitration. So just learning how to negotiate, learning the value of a trademark, learning the value of a player, all that stuff really does translate. I think translates well into into running a business. Oh, for sure. Look, dealing with different personalities in general is, I think, probably one of the most important skills you can have in addition to patience and empathy and all those things. And I think it's good to learn those things in larger organizations so that you can start your own organization, which is why we're here and what I want to get to. Couldn't agree more, by the way. I think that that's very true. In fact, when I was would interview interns, even when I was in baseball, even still to this day, somebody who's worked in the service industry, whether it be restaurants, just customer facing, I think dealing with people is one of the greatest skills you can have. And it's one of the most transferable skills, no matter what industry you're in. And that always jumps off the page at me because if you can negotiate personalities, that's a gift that you can carry with you. Yeah. I've often said it's that, and then being able to tell a good story or craft a narrative where you can persuade others to come on side, or at least to hear your point of view. Everything else I think is kind of, I don't mean to demean other functions in an organization, but you can hire finance people. You can hire people who manage benefits. You can hire people who put things together. And again, you want to hire quality people. But what we're talking about, you can learn, you can refine, but I do believe it's kind of innate, right? You either have it or you don't. And if you don't have it, you have to kind of cover for it and hire others to help you. And if you do have it, or if you have a little shred of it, then you really want to build on it, right? And expand it. And one day, so you know, I was reading this I guess this is a story, but it's not a story because it's true or it's a true story. You're walking your dog somewhere in Detroit or near Detroit, might have been in downtown Detroit, and you would run into women who are staying, I think it's called COTS, the Coalition on Temporary Shelter, and you got to learn a little bit about these women who are unhoused and some of their troubles and some of their challenges, and that led you in 2013 to start Rebel Nell. So why don't we start there? One, for our listeners, what is Rebel Nell? And two, why is it called Rebel Nell? Someone told me there's a great story behind it. I stopped myself from looking it up so I wouldn't repeat it. So I could give you the opportunity to tell the story behind the story. Sure. So you know, Rebel Nell is we're a verified social enterprise and women-owned business. We exist to provide employment, equitable opportunity, and wraparound support for women with barriers. We hire directly from local shelters. And what we're known for is we make one-of-a-kind jewelry and gifts out of repurposed material such as fallen street art and different forms of graffiti. That's Rebel Nell. We've been around since 2013. And you're right, the story is accurate. I lived at the time right next door to Cots, which is a women's shelter here in Detroit. I'd come home from the games, I'd walk my dog, got to know the residents, hear their stories. And these were incredible women who left challenging situations in search of a better opportunity, not only for themselves, but for their families. 
even if this meant going back into the shelter. And, you know, just was really inspired by them. And then in hindsight, just there was a lot going on personally for me. The sports world was was very challenging. Uh, Being a woman with the ambitions that I had and wasn't really feeling the support or uplifting that I I wanted to get from the, the organization. And then the other part of the story that doesn't always make the cut because I forget to, to share it, but it's such an important piece, is Detroit at the time was in the midst of one of the largest municipal bankruptcies the country had ever seen. And so as someone living downtown Detroit, you could see the resources going away. You could see like just how things were changing and particularly you know, with the women that I was getting to know. So this kind of all was happening at the same time. And that's when I thought, well, you know what? Screw it. What if we could create a company that's dedicated to empowering women? What would that look like? I never heard of a social enterprise. It's not what I like thought I was starting. I just wanted a business where we could not only provide all the tools and resources while they're being employed to help get them to the next phase. And so that's how Rebel Nell started. And then the concept for the jewelry, we wanted it to be Detroit-centric. And I was running one day in a place called the Quinter Cut, and it's got a lot of amazing street art. But so much had flaked off the walls. And I picked a piece up. I thought, wow, that looks so neat on its surface. But again, there were all these like layers. And I took it back and went through a special process and revealed those layers. And I called my business partner. I was like, I got it. I think I got the idea. We're going to turn fallen street art into wearable art. I loved the concept because it's exposing layers of discarded material. And I think that just Detroit in in general was being so discarded in the media. And here's Detroit that's made up of all these incredible ideas, people, history. And, you know, I think that women are so often judged just on the surface layer too, but there's so many layers. I mean, there's layers to everybody. And, and, you know, one of the sayings we have at Rebel Knowledge, never fall in love with the top layer. It's what's underneath that counts. So that, oh, I love that. Yeah, I like that. What that's how it all kind of came to be. And then I think the last question was like the name itself. This was actually really challenging. My business partner and I trying to come up with a name that was reflective of the work that we do. And at the time, we were going back and forth and like rejecting each other's ideas. Like, nah, that one stinks. Nah, crazy ideas. And then we both realized that we had a shared love of Eleanor Roosevelt and everything the woman stood for. She's truly a legend. She's like, the issues that she was standing for at the time in which she was standing for are, in many ways, sadly, still relevant today. She was a human rights activist, civil rights advocate, incredibly humanitarian. She actually started her first social enterprise. And her dad called her Little Nell. So we thought she deserved a more badass nickname. That's how we got Rebel Nell. We also believe that the women that we employ are rebelling against what life has dealt to them and dealing with fallen street art, which is rebellious art form. So that's how we got our name. I love that. Now, do you have an art background at all? That's interesting. I always loved art. And if my college had an art minor, I would have qualified for it. But no, the answer, no. I mean, I guess I love art, but and same with jewelry. Like I always been very clear that to call myself a trained jeweler or an actual jewelry maker is is offensive to true jewelry makers. I had a concept, I had a vision. We were able to bring it to fruition. 
But, you know, my team is the true geniuses on really the evolution of the styles and, and what we are making. We're really responsible for coming up with the material that goes inside of it. You know, we, we repurpose a lot of stuff. So fallen street art is our primary material. And I say fallen very specifically. We don't touch it till it actually does crumble off the walls. We have a lot of respect for the artists. We're just picking up the chips. But we've done a lot of partnerships with different sports teams, with different iconic places. So, for example, what we like to find is that material that would otherwise be thrown out, but we can still find meaning and memory in it. We had a great partnership with the Motown Museum. Everyone knows Motown. And when they're undergoing a major renovation, they found all these old red-shaped vinyls that were warped in the basement. And I was like, they're not museum quality, but they're really special. These were Barry Gordy's, the founder of Motown. He made this red heart-shaped album for his dad's 60th birthday. I said, that's perfect. We'll take that and repurpose it. So we did a whole Motown collaboration. We've done them with the Tigers, the Lions, the Pistons, just recently with the just recently launched with the Lions. So that's the fun part. But the inspiration for art and jewelry, did that come from your conversations with these women in the shelter? And then how are you finding women who want to participate? And obviously not all of them are artists, not all of them. They play different roles in the company, but were there like one or two people who were like, wow, they have a lot of talent and skill. And this idea kind of came to you. Like, how did that, how did that come about? That's a good question. I think One of the nice things about not being a trained jewelry maker is that when Diana and I figured out how to make it, we knew that it was fairly easy to make the designs. And that was also really important because the goal of Rebel Nell is we're not, we don't hire jewelry designers. We're up to six local shelters that we partner with now. And the shelters are the ones that refer refer the women to us who ultimately become creative designers with us. And we teach them everything once they get to Rebel Nell. And then once they're at Rebel Nell, only what I love is like the process is so beautiful because each piece is one of a kind, not only because of the cross-section of material, but because of the woman who made it and to see their personalities and their confidence start to come back. And the power that is that when that transfers to somebody who purchases the piece is just truly remarkable. It's my favorite part of it. And, and then how Rebel Nell functions is, They work with us for about 18 to 24 months is like the perfect cycle. And then we'll graduate them into the traditional workforce. And while they're working with us, we tackle barriers that have been prohibitive in the past, like financial training, business education, life wellness, housing resources, legal aid, and then they'll graduate out. However, to your point that some have just grown with us and really fallen into loving the jewelry design and they've stayed and been promoted within Rebel Nell to really help us hone the skill because that's something that really resonates with them. But you don't have to love jewelry to come work here. It is the idea that Rebel Nell gives them a chance to literally change their life and their living situation so they're no longer unhoused and they can find a home of their own. I would say on average, they're in sustainable housing about two months after starting with us. That's where we fit in really well is our relationship with those shelters is incredibly strong. And so I just think of what we're doing at Rebel Nell is really to amplify the incredible work that the caseworkers are doing and the social workers are doing at the shelters themselves. So they're working with, with these incredible women and then they get them to this phase. And then that's where we come in 
as we just take them the next step and hopefully graduate them even further. So we really consider it a strong partnership with the shelter partners that we have. And what you're really talking about, maybe put in another way, is open hiring, right? Because I had Graceton Bakery on a while ago, and they're the folks who supply all of the delicious brownies that you find in Ben and Jerry's. Oh, yeah. They do open hiring. So they hire people. They don't ask what your qualifications are, whether or not you've ever been incarcerated, whether or not you know, you've know you had an issue with addiction or substance abuse. They sit, they talk to people, they vet them and interview them, but they're not using traditional means, which actually can be obstacles and barriers and, and misperceptions. So you're basically doing open hiring, but you're not calling it that, right? It's different, but it's the same. Correct. I don't actually don't know if we've heard that in Michigan, but we're like big advocates for, we call it unchecking the box, right? Where you have to check. We don't do a background check. For me, it's a matter of past shouldn't dictate where you want to go. And we absolutely do interviews and we make sure that there's a, it's a culture fit. But that to me is very different than having you be eliminated from the position because of a system that may have unjustly targeted you and forever locked you in to a position that you shouldn't be in. One would think, you know, I'm often accused of oversimplifying things that there's a model that you've built and it could be applied to other industries. It doesn't just have to be art, jewelry, even though I love the story. I love the whole layers thing. I love how you're breathing new meaning into something that has history and legacy that might be negative, it might be positive, but it doesn't matter because you're taking the best of it and you're making it, you are a vessel for hope for the future, for people who make it and people who buy it. Are there other industries you think that would also be probably good candidates to be able to scale this type of a model? Oh, for sure. I think this is applicable to so many other industries. In fact, we launched our nonprofit partner, T, Teach, Empower, Achieve, in 2016 to really help other businesses. Like we're Rebel Nell's unique. It's baked into our core. It's baked into our our foundation. But I think what's really promising for the world we live in right now is there's, there's just a growing incredible trend of conscious consumers and people are asking questions. People want to know where their stuff is coming from. They want to know how it's made. And a lot of businesses want to be that way or they want to shift to be that way. And they don't know how to do it. So the purpose of T is to partner with those other organizations to walk alongside both the participant and the business to understand what it takes. Because you got to meet in the middle. If you are sincere about, you know, really being a socially driven, socially minded business, it's not how traditional businesses have operated in the past. So T is built for that function. But I think that there's so much that we have that can be transferred to other industries for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt. And if I wanted to buy or if someone wanted to purchase jewelry, can you do this online or do you go physically to different sites to touch it, to feel it? And is there an opportunity to be able to meet the artist or to learn more about the artist behind the jewelry? Yes. So great question. So visit rebelnell.com. That's where all of your answers will be. You can shop online. We also have three brick and mortars, but they're primarily in the Detroit area. Primarily, they are in the Detroit area. We're in 40 different stores in and around the country and growing and expanding. With each piece of Rebel Nell, you get a little backstory of the product, where it comes from, and who made it. And then I encourage everyone to follow Rebel Nell on all of our social media channels 
to get more behind the scenes as we share the story of Rebel Now, who we are, and, and the team that, that makes up Rebel Now. That's cool. And, well, you know, it is the holidays, so now's a good time to go online. And this is going to be way more special than anything else anybody could buy from any other retailer. I can, I can assure you that, right? A hundred percent. And it's one of a kind. Your piece is only your piece. Whether it's with us, which obviously I want to encourage, but please shop small. We know how easy it is to go on Amazon. But if you can think of your local small businesses during this holiday time, it means a lot. Yeah. And I didn't ask earlier, but I always like to ask this question. Did you bootstrap this? How did you fund it from the start? Bootstrap, baby. We started, we did a pitch competition. I've done many pitch competitions. And we just kept putting the money back, putting money back, putting money back. Then another, we finally got some angel investing about four years in. It should say impact investing. That's truly what they are. And then we took an equity partner last year. So you're nine years into this, right? Almost 10. You're going to have your 10th anniversary next year. Happy anniversary. What is the end game here? What is, as a friend of mine used to call, the point of arrival? How do you know that you've made it? Or is it just constantly iterative? But like, without giving away too much, though, what's next? That is such a hard question, I think, for entrepreneurs to answer. Because we're always on to the next thing. And that's, that's a lesson that we all need to learn is to be really grateful and pause where we've come. I mean... I have so much to be grateful for. It is not an easy road, and you want to give up every other minute. <laughs> it's just a roller coaster ride because you always start thinking about how far you have to go, but you really, it's okay to look back sometimes. And that's what I'm challenging myself to do more of is just say, okay, well, wow. I mean, 10 years is a big deal. I never would have dreamt that we would have gotten to this point. But my bigger dream is I admire what Kendra Scott did, and I want to be the next Kendra Scott with true measurable impact. Right. It's kind of like, and nothing against Kendra Scott, Kendra Scott with a heart. Yeah, it is. I mean, she was the first tier. I'm like the Kendra Scott with of the next generation with measurable impact where you can really, you know, she was great at like pushing the women's empowerment, but we're actually like really doing it. Right. Yeah. No, I, I think that's her. Like I said, nothing against her. Great role model, but I often wonder, though, how come every business can't, this is so naive in some ways, but every business should have social impact at its center at this point, don't you think? It's very hard and it's very expensive. I mean, my business would look totally different. My life would look very different. I could take the material, I could ship it overseas, I could get it back and I could sell it. There's still a story component there. That's not why I started the company. And that is where a lot of businesses struggle. As I say, they want to. And then when you start doing it, you understand the the economics of it. You understand what it takes. There's a larger learning curve. I mean, again, I could be hiring jewelry designers. That would make my life a lot easier too. But we do all the training here and not only training, but then we're also paying for the education that we give them. So it's very expensive to be a socially driven business. Yeah. But you're also at the same time, obviously very bright in doing these collaborations, like with Motown, like borrowing equity from others without having to pay for that directly, but baking it into what you're creating is genius, right? And I think that's your workaround, right? That's one of the workarounds. It's one of the workarounds. Absolutely. And and I see that too, is they're more likely to partner with us because of our social mission. So we also bring that to other companies. And how hard do you have to work every day when you bring on new employees and partners to maintain the integrity of that mission. Because like you said, 
it's tempting probably to slip up and I'm not going to mention the company, but I was using product the other day and I was just looking at the fine print and it's like, you know, designed in North Carolina, thoughtfully manufactured overseas. And like, I'm a PR guy. Like that is bullshit. It's not bullshit. It's the way they said it. Like that is not transparent. That's opaque. Just tell me it's Vietnam or whatever, but then why don't you let me know that, you know, you vetted that plant or that manufacturing facilities met these whatever third party certifications to make sure that there are no human rights violations, or whatever. But that is an easy way out. And that is not the way you're going. Correct. And I think that's, it's really interesting too, because there is also, again, like with the conscious consumers, there's a lot of businesses trying to finagle that and say that they do X, but they really genuinely don't, or they do it so small that it's just phenomenal. So for us, like getting the verifications, there's a wave now with the social enterprise SEWF, which the U.S. social enterprise verifications just merged with the UK's, which is a really big deal because the UK is kind of the front runner of establishing the guidelines for social enterprises. So we just became only the second verified social enterprise in Detroit. And I'm really proud of that. I'm, I'm proud of the work that they've done to really build that out because I think by having some standards, by having some accountability is allowing for more transparency. Right. And what's the difference between that body and B Corp? I'm not a thousand percent sure. I'm not going to like speak to it. B Corp is next on my list. We're an L3C, which is like when we start the business in Michigan, it was like L3C or B Corp. We went with L3C. We thought it was going to take off more. Anyway, B Corp is, is a good certification. SEWF, in my opinion, is like the next level of, of criteria. Yeah. Either way, I think having a third party, a credit audit, hold you to it over a period of time continuously, not just one and done is critical and it's really important. And it is, you do need that stamp of approval, whatever the L3 thing, whatever thing is, L3C? Sounds like my back pain, L3C sounds like we're <laughs> my lower back, like my disc and my, you know, whatever, leave it to some like government bureaucrat to come up with some weird designation, right. That you can't explain, but yeah, just make it simple. Okay. So last question. You obviously work very hard. What people can't see is that you are in the manufacturing facility. It's where you hear some background noise because people are working and you're dressed warmly. It looks like it's a cold environment in Detroit. So how do you find your own kind of inner peace and solace and how do you regulate yourself throughout all of this? I'm a work in progress. (laughs) (laughs) I I like the honesty. Being really honest, I had a total crash and burn last year and, and went to really dark space. And so I just had to had to lift myself back out. And it is lonely. And I have an amazing business partner too. But, you know, when you're the, the CEO and the co-founder, like everything is on your shoulders. Even though, you know, they say you're surrounded by so many people, but it's, but it's, it's really lonely. You're on the island. You're the only one who really gives a true shit at the end of the day. And... I think one of the things I've learned is that no one's going to tell me to take a break. I think I always look for that as someone to be like, Amy, you need a vacation. And no one's going to do that because that's what I do for other people. And so I'm getting better at like giving myself when I start to feel that tension just to take a little breather. And, and that I think is just identifying those moments where you can go this way or this way and try and land here to get to the next phase is, is important. I imagine that. I mean, I know I'm like this, but your brain probably doesn't shut off and you're constantly always thinking, 
And I have a hard time with that as well. So I used to think everybody was like that. Not everybody's like that. So I feel <laughs> you. I, not. I, so I had a really good therapist not too long ago tell me, actually, that's actually a creative brain. I'm like, really? She's like, yeah. I said, oh, so it's not like pathological. I'm not like, she's like, it can be. <laughs> you don't take care of yourself. And you don't prioritize your physical and mental health and well-being. It's, and it's the reason why I ask a lot of entrepreneurs, especially social entrepreneurs, because, you know, there's also a little part of us that's like, no one's going to do this right unless I do it. And then you have to kind of let that go and you have to be like, okay, well, you know, good enough is good enough as long 80% as... 80% rule. What we, yeah. Yeah. That's totally. what I go by. I totally agree with you. Like getting comfortable with if they do it 80% as good as I would, let go. Let it go. There's not going to be perfect. They're not going to send the email the way you want to. They're probably going to take a little bit longer to get the deal across the finish line, but... It'll get there. Yeah. And we're also in this very funny environment right now, post-COVID, where people are back, but they're not necessarily 100% back. There's still a little bit of tension around kind of like personal space versus workspace. There's part of me that's like, you know, nothing replaces face-to-face, serendipity, creativity. Things happen face-to-face that can't possibly happen the way we're speaking right now. And then I also fully understand that not everybody's built for face to face and there's other stuff going on in life, you know, and I don't think we've all, I don't think any of us have figured it out yet, but we're trying to navigate that. And then at the same time, I'm sure like, well, I don't want to be a hypocrite. This is social enterprise. I need to back off these guys a little. (laughs) It's like, it's weird. It's a weird dynamic. You could not be more accurate with the way that you're stating. It's so true. So true. So listen, you've been very generous with your time, not just for me, but for all these women whose lives you, you've absolutely transformed and you've given them agency and empowerment like I don't think many people can possibly do. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you coming onto the show. And it is rebelnell.com. Did I get that right? That's correct. Okay. So I encourage all my listeners to go to rebelnell.com. We'll post this before the holidays so you can do all your shopping there. Yay! <laughs> yes. And Amy, thank you. And thank your dad for being a Mets fan. I really appreciate that. That warms my heart. Thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for everything you're doing. And I can't wait to catch up with you again in however many months or years to come to see kind of where you guys are and how many more lives you've shared for. I look forward to it. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and hosts by emailing BOP at kwtglobal.com or visiting AaronQuitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast. Mm-hmm.